Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. If you want to call in during the program, make note, the phone number here is 707-937-5103. 707-937-5103, and I shall endeavor to remember to repeat that for you later on in the program, though I may forget. If you want to email during the program, you can send it to dj at kzyx.org, dj at kzyx.org. Also, archives of the program can be found at our website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, and uh, on the KZYX website on something called Jukebox. You can look for it. Just go to KZYX website. How are you all today? I wish I could see you. You know, I talk into a microphone, and I'm assuming and hoping you're out there. We're sitting here in an airless room called a radio studio. I wish you could see it. It's uh, full of equipment. I'm sitting here with uh, my friend Mike Delora, who's our engineer, and our two guests, Dr. Wendy Phillips. Wendy Phillips. Where did I get Phillips? I said that to myself several times. Sorry, Wendy. It's Dr. Wendy Wood and Dr. Thais Mazur. They're sitting. So four of us are here in a little tiny room called the studio. It has to be kept small so that we don't have sounds bouncing off the walls and into your ears. And, um, and I'm picturing you in your home, in your car, and I appreciate your listening. If you are listening, you have some interest in, in, in your health. You could be listening to music, you, you could be listening to some other talk program on any one of a number of topics. Instead, you're listening to a health program. I wonder how interested you are in your health. I've spent a significant portion of my own life interested in my health and the health of other people. Actually, at least 50 years I've been doing that. 50 years I've been doing that. And I'm told that people lose their memory with age. Well, I remembered to come to the studio today, and I'm broadcasting, so I guess I... St but here's, a, here's an article called Super Ages Offer Clue to Keeping Sharp Memory. Memory loss, according to this article, is not an inevitable part of aging, say U.S. scientists who are studying a unique group of adults in their 60s and 70s, considered quite old by these scientists. Little do they know with minds as sharp as people in their 20s. These super-agers perform just as well on memory tests as youngsters a third of their age, researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital found. How about that? People as old as in their 60s and 70s have minds as sharp as people in their... Come on ahead, you people in your 20s. Let's see if we can joust with our memories. I'll take you on. So will Michael. What's going on here? Well, we don't really know what's going on, but we know that there is a significant percentage of people who are considered older people who show no sign of typical age-related shrinkage of their brain. 
It appears that certain things in our bodies tend to shrink as we get older. You read about how muscle mass decreases by 5% every year. That can be reversed if you're interested in your health. What do you think is a reasonable amount of time to dedicate to your health each day? What do you think? How much time do you actually spend on your personal health each day? Do you, do you think spending time considering your personal health is a worthwhile expenditure of time? Do you? Is the time you spend on your health is it a planned event? In other words, do you have it on your schedule? Like you have a schedule, you go to work at a certain time, or maybe you eat at a certain time. You do certain things that you want to get done at a certain time. We schedule them, or at least a lot of us do, not everyone, of course. But what about this issue of health? Do you think it's worth putting a, a note on your calendar so that at a, a certain time or day every week you sit and actually consider actually consider your health, physical, mental, or perhaps you don't differentiate. You, it's all one big person or little person. But how about it? Have you, have you ever spent a period of time just sitting and focusing on what you can do to improve your physical or mental health? Is that like part of your life's agenda to have a schedule like that? No one ever taught me to have a schedule like that. I went to school. I went to school for a, almost all of my first 27 years. Not one time did anyone ever say to me, you know, Richard, it would be great if once a week or once a month or once a something, you sat down and spent a a half hour or an hour or an afternoon or some time thinking about your your mental and physical health and what you might be able to do to improve it or what about a what about an entire day how how many of us have gone years decades without ever spending an entire day considering our personal health. What do you all think about that? I mean, is this just me because I'm, some, I'm, a, I'm a health fanatic thinking this way? Or do you think sometime in the near future you might spend a day of your life thinking about and writing about, taking notes on your personal health? What does that include, your personal health? Does it include thoughts, healthy thoughts and not healthy thoughts? If you're able to do or even think about what I'm talking about today, consideration of personal health, if you're able to do that, you're very fortunate that you even have the time to think about doing. I mean, there's thinking, and then there's thinking about doing, and then there's doing, which is the action. If you can even think about it, you're in a very fortunate category because 8 million people in California may not be able to do so. 
That's eight million out of about 40 million. We're talking about mm, 22 or 23% of Californians, they can't be thinking about health because they're thinking about how they're going to eat and how they're going to pay their rent. Yeah, 24% of the population of California are in poverty, are in poverty. That's 10% above the national average, which is about 14. California has the highest poverty rate in the United States, sadly. The national poverty rate is about 14%, which is about 40 million people. I want you to think for a moment, if you'll join me, if you'll indulge me. Think about what might happen if someone organized the 40 million people in poverty, what would it look like to have, what, what would it look like to have a union of the impoverished? Or suppose somebody organized the 8 million people in California so that they could speak as one voice. What would the voice be saying to us? Can you... Can you hear the cries? Can you hear the cries of one in four children who are food insecure and go to sleep hungry every night? Can you? If it's not happened to you, the it being going to bed food insecure and hungry night after night, if it's not happened to you, you can't imagine it. You can't imagine what it's like unless you've been a child going to to bed hungry and insecure and going to sleep hungry. You can't imagine it. It's almost unimaginable, if not unimaginable. If 25% of, of our children in California are going to bed hungry, are we not building a generation of people, most of whom will be psychologically insecure for their entire lives? And I ask myself and I ask you, my dear gentle listeners and friends, is this who we want to be? What are your thoughts on this? Will you write or call? Or maybe we'll find out, maybe we'll find out from our, our authors, Dr. Thais Mazur and Dr. Wendy Wood, who bring us today their book, Do No Harm, do no harm, subtitle, Mindful Engagement for a World in Crisis. Welcome, welcome, Thais. Oh, thank you so much, Richard, for having us. Thank you. Welcome, Wendy. Oh, thank you, Richard. It's a pleasure. Mindful Engagement for a World in Crisis. Please, let's start out there by telling us what you mean and why you use this subtitle. Well, Wendy and I are colleagues, and we're both uh, researchers in the field of mindful engagement. In fact, we kind of coined the term from the research that we did. Uh, we have both worked in the trenches around the world with different kinds of populations, including refugees and inmates, um, people rehabbing from uh, drug use. We've worked with um, a lot of people <laughs> that you can imagine. And we've seen things that 
created a conversation between us about how do we really work in the world that does no harm? How can we work with kindness? And what are the qualities that really make a lasting change? And so from our conversation, Wendy and I decided that we wanted to do a research project looking into the phenomena of uh, do no harm. And we have our own stories about that, but we decided the best way to bring it forward was to interview people out in the world that we felt exemplified this way of uh, working with others. And so from a research project, which took us about three years. Uh, maybe a little less, but yes. <laughs> about that, and a lot of hard work, and a lot of thinking, and reading, and looking at how other people wrote about engagement, and mindfulness, and altruism. Uh, we wrote up the paper, research paper, and we were really excited about what we found and decided to write a book. We feel like the message and the information is important for others to see. And mindfulness is being used a lot, as we know, out there in the world. Um, and we don't just see this as a big global mindful engagement piece, but it really starts from our own internal knowledge of ourselves, and then that moves into the bigger world. Um, and we're both very passionate about this subject and have been talking a lot about it with many, many people and organizations and other places to try to bring this idea of how we are in the world and what qualities we embrace create all the difference. Typically, when we see uh, interviews on television, which are, are, are visuals, uh, we see uh, the interviewer, in this case myself, interviewing the people one at a time, and the interviewer looks at one and interviews, and then the other, and then the other, and the other, and so on. In this case, I, I, I propose something uh, somewhat different, and that is that if you want to talk to each other or you hear the other one say something, please feel free to talk to each other as well as to talk to me. Mm -hmm. I think it'll make it a much more interesting program for our listeners. Sure. I think um, I'd like to add this part about engagement. It's a, it's a word that is, we're seeing being more frequently used in, um, in a variety of domains, everywhere from health and welfare to politics and environmental discussions um, around sustainability and some of the changes and challenges that we see. But I think... Lila Watson, who is an Aboriginal elder, said something that really resonates for Thais and I as we went through this thinking. And she says, if you've come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. I do believe that this was a, a quote that made such sense to Thais and as as we began to not just look at this research, but as we expanded it into the depth of this book, as we started interviewing people from around the world, people who work in environmental justice, social justice, internationally renowned mediators, um, peace builders uh, at, in Africa, as examples, and India, it became clear to us that this concept of engagement really reflected this idea that your welfare is bound up in mine. What I do affects you, and what you do affects me. So you can see this from the individual and community level, 
And you can also see how that expands into a much more global conversation and the altruism and the action that's connected to that. Because so many of us who've worked in human rights and environmental rights and peace building, we know this is very humbling work. It's, it's challenging to walk into completely foreign environments for us and to move through that in ways that, yes, do no harm. That is our intention. Yet we know that this is very burdensome in work. It's difficult to do that. Both Thais and I have seen over the years very well-intentioned people, and ourselves included here, who have walked into environments with all the skills you would believe to be necessary to help support people in their movement toward freedom, I think, and justice and love and connection, the things and happiness, the things we're all seeking. Yet with all of our good intentions and our outstanding skills, there were, at times it can cause harm, you know? Tice and I were really curious about people who walk into those environments and that does, that's not what happens. What is it about them? What are those characteristics, those qualities? And through our research and then our continued conversations and more interviews, and we'll talk about story in a little bit, but uh, with these people from around the world, just amazing folks, we saw these continued qualities start to emerge. They were very co consistent, very coherent. Some you would have expected, but a few actually leaped out of us, that, uh, out of our findings that were, you know, new to us. And we Quality, thought worth qualities that you noticed that were new to you yes. in terms of what engagement means. Because yeah. I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, you know, listeners of our program are hearing this word engagement, mm -hmm. and they hear you say. Engagement means that I interact with you and you interact with me and, and we're both open to some change occurring. And I, uh, correct? Did I get that right? I think that's a fair and good So I'm listening and, and, and a person is on their way to work right now and mm -hmm. they're thinking, I'm going to walk into work and I'm going to engage yeah. and something's going to happen to me or something that happened to the other person and that is what they're talking about. And so then where do we go next? I'm now open exactly. to this in, uh, on uh, this engagement. Okay. And, and, and what's next? So that, I, so that in my workplace, as I'm listening to this program and mm -hmm. wanting to learn from it, how do I do no harm mm -hmm. and how do I do the right thing? Uh, that's a great question. We're going to keep looking into that, Wendy and I, as we go on. And we hope this book is the beginning of the conversation. Um, I want to say that we are very uh, much in this culture dependent on what we do. It defines us. It defines our role. It defines our sense of self. And we're looking at how we do things, those qualities. And so from our research and all these stories that we collected, all these narratives, um, the qualities that came through again and again and again from the people we talked to were mindfulness, compassion, deep listening, wise speech, authenticity, joy, love, and responsibility. And we then had to ask, well, what do those qualities really look like? 
And it's not something we can just do at the drop of a hat. It's a constant practice. It's a practice minute by minute where we are in deep inquiry with ourselves and others um, to bring these qualities into the room and into the world. So just as mindfulness is a practice, and a lot of people are talking about that, these qualities are a practice. And it's not something that we think about daily. We don't think about our quality of engagement. We're just thinking about what we need to get done. And um, what was most interesting to me as we did this research were these quality. These qualities are what helped people in our book that we interviewed navigate complex and chaotic situations. And so it could just be as easy as the way you say good morning to someone and how you move through the room and how you address people and how you listen. But it's, it's more than that. It's when you're up against the wall and you're not sure what to do and you're in that fight or flight or sympathetic parasympathetic response. You, you mentioned the word uh, mindfulness was, was the first when we're mm -hmm. talking about what does it take for engagement, or what the French call engagement, which is which is being the engagement means fully engaged, n not thinking about something else while I'm talking to you, not my mind wandering, but being present and talking directly to you. I'm engaged, and the word you use, one of the, the characteristics of engagement or engagement, you say mindfulness, compassion, deep listening, and authenticity. So let's take them one at a time. Please, uh, uh, Wendy, tell us, for you, what is uh, mindfulness? What does that mean? We hear it a lot. What, 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 uh, what is your research? What do you b believe mindfulness is? I, it's such a complex term that, and Thais mentioned this earlier, it's one of these terms that's being, you know, put on the outside of mayonnaise bottles at this point in time. So. It was really important for Tice and I to sort of dig deep into what it what it truly um, means as it emerges. I th and what we found with um, through the stories of the f of the people that we interviewed and through their narratives is that it was just this sense of knowing precisely what's happening in the moment. This developing this awareness of what's happening now that the past has essentially little, if anything, to do with where I am in relationship to the people that I'm with and working with. And remember, all of these people are working in the world. It has little to do with what our expectations and hopes and possibilities are for the future. But it's that v ability to be present, calm, remain balanced, and undisturbed. Thais, would you like to speak a little more um, to that, too? I agree, and I think it's a delicate balance between being in the moment and, and just going, okay, I am really here, I'm really listening, I'm letting go of any agenda I came to this meeting with or came into the room with, with my partner or my children, and I'm just going to be here with what is. The other thing that I think is important with this idea of mindfulness is this, um, it's critical to have a sense of yourself and an inner knowing, a deeper sense of who you are in that moment. And that allows you to open up who other people are in the room. We have a chapter in the book called 
um, the empty bowl. And my visual image for this is walking into the room with an empty bowl. There's nothing in it. We don't have any idea of how it's going to get filled. We're just there. We're there and we're open to what's going to happen. And I think that creates a natural flow in the process. And I think it allows a lot of room for truth and authenticity to come forward. And it's a very important piece to how we can move through the world in this way that's altruistic and uh, without harm. The other piece of mindfulness that showed up on a, uh, with great consistency um, with the people that we've interviewed is this, this fact that they don't come into their environments with preconceived notions that that was really important to remove judgment and attachment to the outcomes. That's a very big part of what mindfulness is. I'm not attached to how it's going to end up looking. And I'm not going to create, at the end of the day, um, an environment in which I'm moving everybody in my world toward that outcome. So that was one of these elements that really fits into the definition of mindfulness in a, in a beautiful way, I believe. You know, I'm listening to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm picturing a listener out there saying, I don't know what the heck these people are talking about. <laughs> Have they never had a job in their lives? How can I not be attached to outcome? My boss wants me to perform a certain thing and get to an outcome today. What do I do about that? I can't be unattached. Am I supposed to look at my boss like a Buddha and say, I'm not attached to the mm-hmm. outcome? I think the answer would be, I'm fired. You don't want to make a product sell. You're not going to have it work. Get it. What do we need you for? Go to some ashram. We can't have you working here. So how do how do you how do you not be attached to an outcome when we live in a world where the outcome is what we're getting paid to work for? You guys yeah. just fix the tire. I better get that tire fixed. I can't say I'm not attached to the answer. How do you do that? Well, I love the, I love it when people ask this question because two things. Uh, both Thais and I have worked in environments where it's extremely outcome-driven, and we understand this is an outstanding question. And it's easy for us to drift into this conversation that does feel like I can just sit on the, on my pillow or my cushion and become mindful, and at the end of the day, um, my quotas are going to be met. We certainly aren't, nor are any of the people that we interviewed suggesting that. But this is what they do suggest that in order to achieve the best outcome at the end of the day, we can't be so stuck in what happened in the past, the, the challenges and the, the, and the difficulties of the past. Or, as we all know, that goal out there, when we reach a goal about fixing that tire, can, can move a little bit. But if we're not present in the moment with the people who we're working with to achieve that outcome, what tends to happen is we miss the things that make it, that are helpful in making us, helping us achieve our goal. Well, and the best outcome as well, something that's really sustainable. And I think, uh, you know, you've got to put the hands out to everybody and, and have the group come along and bring it into um, some kind of manifestation. But beyond that, I want to go back to this idea, it's not what we're doing, it's how we're doing it. So you can step on a lot of toes and yell at a lot of people and to try to get to that end goal, but it 
at the end of the day, when that happens, you're not going to have a great harmonious relationship at work with yourself, with your coworkers, with your boss, whatever that might be. So um, it's also going to really affect the product, no matter what it is. And I mean, there have been some studies on people who have really been successful are not necessarily the ones who have stepped on the toes of others. It's how they did it along the way, uh, more than what they accomplished. That voice that you were just listening to is Dr. Thais Mazur. She's here with her co-author, Dr. Wendy Wood. They're talking about Do No Harm. That's their book, Mindful Engagement for a World in Crisis. We're here today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Mindfulness is a tough word to describe. It's very difficult, as, as is being in the present. I remember one time I was talking to a patient about being in the present and being mindful, and he looked at me and he said, I don't know what the, I don't know if I can say that word on radio, but I don't know what the heck you're talking about. He says, I'm on my way here this morning. As I'm going out the door, my kid puked, and, and my wife looked at me like, are you going to clean it up? And I knew I'm late for an appointment. I'm paying you money to be here. So I just walked out the door. My wife is screaming at me. I'm sitting here right now. I've got a visual image in my head of my kid puking and my wife screaming. And you're telling me to be mindful and be in the present. How do I do that? How do I get rid of all that stuff that I'm, that I'm shaking inside about? That's what I want to know because that happens to me all the time. I go to work with a meeting with my boss. I'm shaking about something that happened this morning, whether it was with my family or a co worker or maybe a check bounced and I'm nervous as all get out about and you're telling me be in the present how do you do it doc come on tell me well how do you guys do it what do you mean <laughs> what do you what are these people all these experts that you have in your in your book Ron they do Mayumi Oda Sarah James Kathy Kelly what do they tell what are, what's the wisdom that they bring us and how do you get how do you be mindful well mindful is not about letting go of human emotion of course, that guy's going to be agitated, upset, whatever, angry. That's part of being human. It's that principle of who we are. Um, how we are with those emotions, how it affects our actions in the world is another thing. It's not that we're going to erase everything and be the all-balanced, forever non-emotional person, again, sitting on the cushion. This is about bringing everything we are into a room and doing it in a way with awareness. I think I'd like to add um, to this discussion also the, f the fact that there's a great deal of research, medical research, on the neurobiology of this concept called mindfulness. What we know is that if we, when when your kid is puking, when your tire is flat, your wife is yelling at you, when you're leaving the house, or your dog is chewed up your socks, whatever, that what that does is elicit this part of your brain that, that allows you to not make sense of your experience, to not be able to look to the future, to not be able to, without with any sort of success. It removes that prefrontal cortex ability to make sense of those experiences and then act on those experiences in a way that will reach your goal, achieve your goal of settling down so they can listen to the doctor when they're there and, 
and be able to respond rather than react to what happened at home, as your example, Richard. So what mindfulness helps us do from a neurobiological perspective is to re-engage those parts of the brain that help us make sense of our experiences in such a way that we can respond rather than react. And if you look at the stories in this book of everyone who we interviewed, their ability sort of re-engage those parts of their brain in very, very high conflict situations because of their practice of mindfulness, which was everywhere from meditation to working in the garden to being on the rivers in Alaska. The you, you've mentioned uh, the ability to respond rather than react. Please tell us, yes. elaborate on what, it, yes. what do you mean by respond and what do you mean by react so we understand. I think if we were to rename this book, it could have been respond rather than react because in essence, this ability, these, these qualities that we, demonst that we talk about in this book really are cultivated, are grown by people's ability to maintain their, to their, their, their ability to respond rather than react. So they come into a situation, we'll use your, your, your example, somebody's sick, somebody's yelling at each other, you know, on and on, and we have uh, to go make it through our day. Their practices, whatever it is that they've been able to cultivate in these and, and grow these qualities, have allowed them to be able, uh, mm -hmm. rather than say, I can't get this done, doctor. I can't, I, I, how can I manage any of this? How could I be present with all this is happening? Rather, and the reactivity that comes from that is, can be dangerous, damaging, not allow us to get to our goal. Mm -hmm. I, I immediately um, uh, thinking about a story in the book, Sarah James, who's a Gwich'in elder and was asked to go out and uh, talk about the Caribou Basin and protect uh, the land there. And um, she goes, she's flown to the Senate. She's never been out of her small village up there in uh, the Caribou Basin, Alaska. And she's brought in to talk to a senator in a room. And... Um, he yells at her for 20 minutes. And she just stands there for 20 minutes and listens. She has a lot of reasons to be angry and reactive. Her culture is basically being devastated by corporate interests and so on. But she just stands there. For 20 minutes, she looked at the clock. And he was so red in the face. And he stopped yelling at her. And he said, aren't you going to say anything? And she said, well, I am. I can see that you're really angry. And you're all about uh, going in there and basically, you know, wrecking our culture. I really get that. In my language, we're all about the living. And that's what we're about. You are not about the living. <laughs> and she just kept it really calm mm -hmm. and was right there with her authenticity and her truth. She could have turned around and just gone off because what has happened in that village is really obscene. I mean, it's egregious what's been going on. So she responded 
rather than reacted. Yeah, she really listened mm-hmm. and she watched and she observed and she was there open and in the moment. Mm-hmm. Michael, you've been studying with uh, the first author in, uh, in Thais and uh, Wendy's book, the first author in their chapter on mindfulness, Rondé Doe. Uh, could you give us a, a couple of words, please, on responding and reacting? Well, I think that Thais and Wendy have really hit the nail on the head. Responding and reacting, it's kind of at the heart of listening and uh, getting to the heart of what is being said. I don't know that I can expand much on it. I think it's a uh, just a great quality in people when you see it and hear it. It's so easy to, to acknowledge that they've seen past the uh, they've seen past the flack, and they've been able to go right to the heart of the issue that's being discussed. Thank you. Yeah, I think about it as when I react, it's like I'm robotic. I'm immediate. You poke me, and there's a reaction. I poke back, or there's an immediate something. Responding means you poke me, and I consider what just happened, and then I review my options. All this happens in a nanosecond, of course. And then amongst the options, I choose one, and that's what my response is. So it's more of a choosing to respond, whereas reacting Mm. is more of a robotic almost uh, conditioned uh, aspect of it. Uh, But I think we need to move on because you have so many goodies in your book, and I think we we, we have running time uh, short here, so I want to talk about compassion, and let's move on to it. Mm -hmm. Because, again, I just want to review for everybody listening that uh, in terms of do no harm and and creating mindful engagement, uh, our authors talk about mindfulness, compassion, deep listening, and authenticity, and we're plowing our way through, so let's talk about compassion. (laughs) Well, compassion is, in many ways, the essence of this book, when we understand compassion in its truest sense. Titnot Han says, compassion is a verb. And this absolutely plays out in the work and the um, qualities and the understanding of the people uh, that we've brought forward in this book. Let's be really clear about what compassion is. Compassion in its deepest root across many, many traditions, religious, spiritual, um, compassion is this sense that you need to understand yourself. No se teipsum, isn't it that Latin word? Know thyself. That it's important to understand yourself, understand your suffering in all those contexts. And then if you do this, you can understand others, others' suffering, others' experiences. And from that understanding of self and other, you can actually act in a way that does no harm. So that's the essence of compassion. Yeah, you know, it brings to point a story in the book, Phyllis Rodriguez, who lost her son in 9-11. And as the call was going out to go bomb the Middle East, she and her husband uh, wrote a letter to the paper, not in our name. You might remember that. Um, And they didn't want the bombing to take place in the name of their son. 
But really what happened for them is they thought about all the mothers in the Middle East who were also suffering because of this incident and other incidences of war. And they just said, we, but violent cannot beget violence. It does not heal anything. And they started the next day families for a new tomorrow, um, or for peaceful tomorrows, families for peaceful tomorrows. And uh, Phyllis Rodriguez and her husband are still traveling the world and working with um, fa- uh, parents who have lost their children to war and violence. And I think it's a great example of compassion. Now, we don't have to travel the world and work with families. Uh, that's kind of a big order. But we can just look out our back door or wake up in the morning and, you know, pay attention to how we are saying hello to our partner or how we're interacting with our children. And it is this idea of uh, ahisma. Gandhi talks about that. And it's no injury through right action. Um, this deeper sense of the of ourselves and the other. It's a collective sense and universally held values of doing no harm. And I think that is very much a part of compassion. And how about you all who are listening? Do you want to engage with us? You want to talk some about mindfulness, compassion? Pick up your phone, join in, be an be a active and verbal part of this radio community. The phone number here is 707-937-5103. You don't even have to give your name if you're concerned about that. Just call in and say what you have to say. Be part of engagement. Do we want to talk a little more about compassion or should we move on to deep listening? Actually, I'd like to say a little bit more about compassion in the context of sort of what's happening around us in the United States in a big way. Not to become political, because I don't choose to do that here. Yet, I think this concept of compassion is critical for us to look at as we're making decisions, as we're moving through, the, through this, um, our, our political and social sort of challenges that are, we're facing today. At the end of the day, we want to be happy. All of us. I, I would be shocked if there's any of your listeners or anyone out there who doesn't want to be happy. It's important to engage with people who do understand themselves enough <laughs> that they can understand us, the voters, the people who are affected by their actions. So we need to be really aware of people's ability to self-reflect and to understand that their actions affect me and mine affect them. Compassion plays a big part in this. And I think for all of us to understand compassion in its truest sense, not empathy, not sympathy, but compassion. I get it. And so, and I understand me. And does that other person understand themselves well enough? Or are they acting? Or are they reacting are they being reactive in such a way that it can, it's, it's damaging and it's not helpful to us? So in leadership, it's a very important quality, is it I is. think what you're talking about, Wendy. Yeah. And as we look at the uh, potential leaders, if you will, of our country, and we'll all be able to hopefully go and vote and hopefully be able to um, have our vote count, 
Compassion is a, is a big piece to ask that question. By the way, I, I can't take a, a political position on air, of course, uh, but you all can say anything you want as long as you don't use one of the seven dirty words that we're not allowed to use that would get us fined and well, perhaps closed down. Yeah. But I'm wondering, just listening without taking a position myself, about what it would be like if our listeners made a chart and they wrote down the words mindfulness, compassion, deep listening, and authenticity, and then they wrote down on the side Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, and then they ranked each of these two people running for president on just how mindful, how compassionate, how well they listen. Um, here's another one that, uh, that Wendy's pointing out that I missed because part of the deep listening chapter is also wise speech. So you'd be r ranking Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump on the attribute of wise speech and also on authenticity. So you'd be ranking their, them politically based on how these authors would rank, might uh, uh, see them as being mindfully engaged for a world in crisis. Interesting, interesting way to do that. I, uh, perhaps a new take on your book. Um, shall we talk now about wise speech and, and deep listening? Can we do that? We've got time for that, and we can get to authenticity as well. We're moving right along here. I was interviewed um, on another radio show several months ago, and this question of authenticity came forward, and they were speaking of one of the candidates, Donald Trump, who claims that he's authentic. And people say, oh, he's really authentic. And uh, it's, it's interesting, your question, and how it relates to that question, because, and I never thought about ranking them, so it's a great idea. Thanks, Richard. I think that'll be a fun thing for all all of us and your listeners to do. This concept of authenticity has this really, this, this flavor of compassion that's weaved into it. If you're being authentic, there's this sense of freedom, but there's, there's also this sense of integrity and interdependence and understanding yourself well enough to be able to act. Um, wise speech and deep listening, uh, if, we're, if we think carefully about some of our our two candidates. Um, I'd be it, it, I'd be hard pressed to look at the two candidates and think that their wise speech and their dis, then their deep listening compared uh, they were they were comparable. Um, so I, I like this concept of of sort of <laughs> thinking about. <laughs> about ranking them in Politics that way. Politics in a book. I mean, I really didn't yeah. think of it in those terms when we were writing the book. We weren't even thinking in political terms, but this has brought some good what, things to Yes, to what light. is wise speech? What do you mean here? I see you've got four authors who talk about wise... What is wise speech? Wise speech is about pausing before you react with your words. Uh. I mean, words are extremely powerful, and... Uh, we often have a script already in our head, what we want to get across. Our point, our story, it's writing. Before the other person's even done talking, we're taking a breath in with what we want to say next. And it often has to do with us. Wise speech is a lot about bringing everybody into the room and everybody at the table before we talk. Uh -huh. We're not just talking about our own story. We're reflecting on others' stories as well. Michael, let's take that call. Uh, 
see what they have to say. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. You're on the air. Uh, yes, I uh, wanted to share Hello. Uh, hello, can you hear well, me? Well, thanks for calling, but we're unable to hear you, so we're going to move on. That was an interesting point that you were making there, because why speech is related to responding rather than reacting, isn't it? Mm -hmm. We can incite things with our words. Words can be used for harm, or they can be used for, for the good. We know what they are. We really do. I, I think, um, I don't think, I know, and I've, and I've lived in this world long enough to know that we can choose our words in a way that we know will hurt the other. And you see it in politics mm -hmm. all the time. Our, looks like our caller is trying to get through again. Let's give it another chance. Nice. Hi, welcome to Mind, Body, Body Health, and Politics. Uh, I hope you're on the air. Can you hear me? Well, Can one you hear of us me? seems to be having some difficulty technically. I'm sure it's us, but it may be you also. Give us another try, if you will. Mm-hmm. So you're saying words can harm. Does that mean my grandmother was wrong when she said sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never harm you? It was an old <laughs> adage, and maybe it's a misguided one. Mike, oh, you're going to try it again? Let's go. All right, sure, let's do it. Try it again. Uh, hi there. Are you on the air this time? Well, well that's I'm on, three. I'm on. I don't want to say three calls and you're out. Keep trying. I, I believe in perseverance as well. That's right. So let's get back to Grandma. What about this? I, I, I love this question. Because our words grow as we grow. They change as we change. And when my grandmother also said, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you, that was great. It was in the context of my world, and other grandmothers were saying it too. I said it made it made sense to me, and she played those words out in the way that that she related to me, and so I didn't find them harmful. I guess what I'm saying here is that we, our words change as society changes. So words like wife, words like husband, meant something very different a hundred years ago than they mean today. They don't mean the same to me as they mean to you. So we have to be, we have to be aware of that when we're in our conversations. And, and again, we know when we're, when we're saying things like, uh, I think somebody should be shot, the extent to what that means. Mm -hmm. Those are very, very powerful words. Very different than a well, kid in school saying mm -hmm. your father's mustache mm -hmm. or some kind of thing that grandma was trying to protect yes. us against. Yes. I we think can, we're going to give him another try, Michael. Sure, let's go for it. Number four, welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Are you here, sir or ma'am? Yeah. Well, that's the. I don't know what's happening, but I think um, we're going to come back to the program. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I wanted to say something about wise speech, and I believe that it does have to do also with deep listening. But part of wise speech is going into a deeper inquiry. If you don't really understand what that person is saying or you don't think you do and you need more information before you can actually respond, it's good to ask questions or just sit with it. A lot of times we think we know because we have our own ideas around something. And culturally, especially culturally in different cultures, this is so important to um, have the skillful means 
to listen yes. for that deeper understanding. And Years inquiry. ago, a Dr. Jack Gibb, who is a colleague of mine, uh, made up this uh, feedback exercise where, where you say something, and my total response is to tell you what I think you said. Then you either affirm, yes, Richard, that is what I said, or no, that isn't what I said, let me say it again. But by doing that, in and of itself, simply by saying back to the person what it is you think they said, you, bec you, you have an engagement and you, have a, you can get a real understanding. Because otherwise what happens is I walk away thinking I know what you said, but it might not be really what you said. It might be simply what I thought I heard you say. And Richard, I, I think this is a good um, place to discuss the fact that my truth is not always your truth. And so when we have a dialogue where we're carefully choosing our words with this concept that we're not going to harm, we're just going to, we're, we're curious, this, this curiosity, this conscious sort of reciprocity that we have, that can change the dynamic for me to understand more what your truth is and you to understand mine. It also plays into this concept of deep listening. I think the, the, the phrase that Thais and I use that's reflected much of what our, our contributors had to say is that we are listening in a way that we can change our mind. How amazing would it be if we could actually listen in a way that we could change our mind? Which is what we definitely can do because yeah. if we're listening, if I'm now listening while I'm talking to you to what I'm saying, that allows me to consider as I'm speaking what I'm saying to you which also then allows me to say, hey, wait a minute, I, I heard what I just said, and please let me take it back. Let yeah. me correct. Yes. I didn't mean to say that. Yeah. I would just, it just came out, but I, I don't want to, right? Because our words hold energy. They hold power. And it's, and it's not just the words. It's the way in which we sort of approach it. If we're approaching things with this concept of, and, and, and our, our language and our listening in this idea that I don't want to harm you in this conversation, Richard. I want us to understand this and be curious about each other, and I'm willing to change my mind or not. If I say something that's offensive to you, but before you can either respond or react, I say, wait a minute, I think I might have said something offensive, let me take it back. Does mm -hmm. that work for you? Yeah, in, in, in two ways. I'll take a breath and re-engage my, my, the part of my brain that says, oh, he's not going to come after me, as an example. Not that you were, but... Um, that, oh, let me just take a breath and go, okay, Richard, I'm happy because I can re-engage that part that is not part of my fight, flight, or fear mm -hmm. factor. I can actually think again and listen again. It works. And doesn't the fact that I stop myself in mid-sentence and asked if I could retract give you a sense of safety because it tells you that I'm listening and I'm not going to just step on your foot and keep stepping, but I'll step off and say, excuse me, I'm sorry. And you shifted your energy and your intentions. So then we have a different kind of engagement. That's right. We do. And often when people are speaking, especially in a large room, a, a room with a lot of people who perhaps, let's just use an example of refugees. They've come together in a room. They are with, let's say, healthcare workers, and there might be some conflict arising. Allowing those stories to be told and not interrupting can often bring forward um, truth and more of an inner 
expression of what's really going on. It goes beyond the words at that point. And this more inner felt sense is being revealed. And I've seen this happen again and again, where everybody is suddenly in this collective experience because they understand that person's pain and what they're really trying to say more through the sense of what they're saying than their words. So allowing space for that is really important. Allowing space, listening, listening mindfully. You've heard some on that. Listening with compassion, deep listening, wise speech, authenticity. These are the topics in Do No Harm, Mindful Engagement for a World in Crisis, brought to us by Drs. Thais Mazur and Wendy Wood, available, I'm sure, on Amazon. You want to take a look at it? Thank you both for being here today. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYAC staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike Delora. Please join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Just forget your foolish pride